welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today for our master's series, I am joined by Professor Zina Hitz of St. John's College for a conversation on Preston Sturgis, the beginning, indeed, of a series on the most laugh-out-loud funny comedian in old Hollywood. Today we will be talking about Sullivan's Travels, one of a series of five movies he did between 39 and 44 that have remained as classics and are perhaps unique simply for concentration. Year in, year out, he had more things to do. He was the original writer-director in American comedy, and perhaps nobody matched quite like he did physical comedy with witty dialogue. Professor Hitz, I started on this path because one of our common friends, Flack Taylor, who is a part of the American Cinema Foundation, told me about your essay on Sullivan's travels and the predicament of Americans who have sympathy, compassion, who want to help the needy, as our protagonist Sullivan does in the movie and don't know quite how to go about it and uh, end up as comically and as tragically as he does. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Please introduce yourself for our audience and tell me about Preston Sturgis and Sullivan Stravas. So um, I, I'm, I teach at uh, St. John's College, which is a small college with a fabled great books program. And what we do there is we teach primarily through conversation, uh, approaches to perennial human questions, the deep human questions, through reading and conversation. So that's what I do with most of my life. I sit around tables with college students and talk about the deepest things and read the great books. Now, it's worth mentioning that this film actually is one that I have watched and talked about with students, and I thought it was perfectly suited for that, and and it was. I talked to the students who volunteered in the local community that we have a club on campus that does that. They were captivated by this movie's account of how difficult that is and uh, the real barriers between social classes and the barriers to practicing one's compassion on the poor and the needy. So that was one way in which my work intersected with this. I also wrote a book, it's just coming out now, called Lost in Thought. And it's a book about intellectual life and why it matters, why learning matters for its own sake and not just for instrumental reasons. I talk about especially the ways in which learning promotes an inner life, a way of being human that creates resilience in difficult circumstances, such as the ones we live in now. And I also write about the pull that happens in many who live in academic life. It feels like a useless life removed from the world of suffering. And I make the argument in the book, as well as in some of my essays, that in fact, intellectual life can be a form of loving service to the poor and the needy. That's a version of the insight that Sullivan has at the end of Sullivan's Travels about the work of comedy. So I I discuss the film in the book, as well as in uh, the essay that you read for Modern Age a couple of years ago. Anyway, I'm delighted to be here to talk about this incredible, profound, brilliant, hilarious movie. Then let us get on to our conversation. But first, please run us through the plot to introduce our audience to the outline of the story, which we'll be discussing at length. So John L. Sullivan is the protagonist. He's a filmmaker from a wealthy background. As the film opens, he's trying to persuade the executives at his company, his handlers, that it's time for him to make a serious film. He's made only comedies, but it's the Depression, it's the 1930s, and he wants to write something that really reaches out to the poor and the needy and captures their suffering and its urgency. 
So he's trying to persuade them to do this, and they're refusing. They're afraid a serious film won't make money. They want him to keep making light comedies. They finally, it emerges that, of course, he's from an extremely privileged background. He's gone to boarding school. He's never worked a day in his life passing the film school. So he has actually no experience to draw on in order to make this film. This begins as an argument in the mouths of his handlers to talk him out of making this film that reaches the suffering. But it ends up encouraging him to go on an adventure. So he decides to dress like a hobo, put a dime in his pocket, and go off into the world of the poor, the world of the jobless, the world of the hungry. Much of the film is the hilarious failure of this attempt. He hitchhikes his way one place to another, and he finds his way back in Hollywood and muses to himself that it's impossible somehow for him to leave Hollywood. He meets up with the romantic interest of the film, played by Veronica Lake, whose character is known as The Girl. (laughs) It's part of the ironic commentary on the film industry that the movie is presenting. And finally, the two of them go out on this adventure together. They're followed by a mobile home run by his handlers with sandwiches and coffee and film to bring his adventure to the press immediately. And they, too, play hilarious roles in his inability to escape. Finally, he and Veronica Lake, the girl, make it out on their adventure. And at that point in the film, we get a montage. We get a series of images of the adventures they have in soup kitchens, uh, eating out of garbage cans, and so on. At the end of this media adventure, as it turns out, it's been filmed the whole time and photographed and published in the newspapers. He decides to give out cash in large amounts as the finale to his adventure. He's robbed, beaten, stripped of his boots, which have identifying information in them, thrown onto a railway car, and left for dead. He wakes up. Everyone believes, because his boots were found by the railway tracks, that he's dead. So he's lost his identity. He's lost his routes of privilege. He is just a hobo. Finally, he's actually succeeded, ironically, in the adventure that he has failed to achieve all along. He's sent to prison because he does not behave as a compliant hobo is meant to behave. He acts like a a rich person who's worthy of more. He gets into terrible trouble in the prison for the same reason. The prison is an ugly, brutal place full of violence and suffering and poverty. It's at the prison he attends a showing of a comedy for the prisoners. A local church shows them a comic film. And he hears the laughter of the prisoners, and he understands for the first time how much comedy means to people who have nothing else. Through a series of twists, he makes his way back out of the prison, but he keeps this lesson with him with which he concludes the film, that comedy is something that ordinary people need, and he's found his way of serving the poor through the production of comedy. So that's the plot of the film. Yeah, it ends up being a defense of comedy after making fun of our comedian for the better part of the first two acts. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. This puts me in mind of something you mentioned to me before, that there's a lot of connections between the way the movie is made and the way the story is told and the protagonist, who is himself Mm -hmm. the observer for the most part. It's a very engrossing movie, but it also allows us to see now and then how close we are to Sullivan and how far away we are from Sullivan. When do I identify with him? When do we think he's just a silly liberal? He's a bleeding heart liberal and he's up to no good without intending it. Right. You know, there's nothing to be upset about. He's not a bad guy in the slightest, but he's just so ridiculous. You know, one, one could easily see how ridicule could turn into contempt, except that at some level he's trying to do what everybody's trying to do. Right. Uh, achieve some fellow feeling, some kind of friendship with other Americans. 
That, however silly he is, is not at all silly, and we all know not to laugh at it. So even before we get to the fearful third act, there's much to be said for the serious undertones of the story. Mm-hmm. It's an American picaresque, and American picaresques are always about what does it really mean to be American, which mm-hmm. way is progress tending, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Mark Twain's Huck Finn or any number ah, of other perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, the story itself, there are really three trips Sullivan's travels are adequately in the plural. First time he goes out alone, second time he goes out with the girl, third time he not only goes out alone, but unwillingly, so to speak. Right, that seems right, yeah. And they seem to be stages in his acquisition of self-knowledge. And the very fact that there's a third act shows how this is serious as a comedy. He should be triumphant. He has learned his lesson. He will get his way. There will be even more success. The press has sold right. him to the nation. America loves him. He's, right. he's got a great girl now. Everything's going to work out. But everything, in fact, does not work out. Everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And we see a southern jail, the chain gangs. We see black people in the south, in a church, singing spirituals. Uh, right. Pharaoh, let my people go. All of a sudden, we get this other view of seriousness that we had long been looking for, along with Sullivan, without... Right. Right. Really being ready for it. In a way, the fact that it comes by surprise, as you suggested, a strange accident in the plot ends up with this guy in jail. There's a turn. <laughs> so that coming. So right. It is wonderfully constructed, and we'll have to try to go through these different stages. Now, how do you think about Sullivan in the beginning? What, what sits this guy on the road? And, and through these comic hijinks, they themselves film like comedy. He's right. being chased through the streets and fields by this van, modern living, a mobile home. All <laughs> homes are mobile homes. That's true. Uh, so I, I, one thing I'm just struck by in hearing us talk already is that it is, I think, a serious film with serious reflections, but it is a comedy and it's easy to, because of its depth and richness as a reflection on this piece of human life, the desire to be compassionate, the desire to help others, the desire to fit in to a community in a way that's authentic. Despite that, it's it's a hilarious movie. I mean, it's extremely funny. The dialogue is incredible. The slapstick, as you say, classic Preston Sturges, mixes with the, the, di- the witty dialogue in a certain way. Just for listeners who haven't watched it yet, it's a tremendously entertaining film from start to finish. I'm realizing we're making the film sound like the sort of film Sullivan wants to make at the beginning, weighty, ponderous, serious. So I think that Sullivan at the beginning is like many of us in the middle or upper classes who knows about suffering from the media. You know, you read a newspaper, perhaps by chance while doing your shopping, you meet a homeless person or you see one while you're driving. You have this moment where you realize that somehow your world is not all there is your beautiful Hollywood villa with a swimming pool and adoring handlers who will do whatever you want so long as you make the millions of dollars, as he does. You know, this seamless world where everything goes your way is not the whole picture. It's the picture really for very, very few people. So he has this very human moment, I think, and he thinks, well, what's the point of making silly comedies in a world like this, Uh, a world where there's soup lines and homelessness and desperate people wandering from the Dust Bowl in any way they can with their entire families? What's the appropriate way for me to respond to this? I should be able to. I'm wealthy. I have a mouthpiece. I'm a filmmaker. What do I do? So his first instinct is to be weighty, ponderous, serious, theoretical. They're watching at the opening of the film an allegorical account of the struggle between labor and capital. 
lived out as a gritty black and white sequence of a fight between a hobo and a railroad bull. Their violent struggle is meant to depict the struggle between capital and labor. Sullivan's trying to persuade the company to make another film like this that he's written. I think it's called uh, When the Darkness Falls or something, something hilarious like that. In that, it reminds me a bit of the ironic use of suffering in any hall, right? The sorrow and the pity, right? So when the darkness falls, it's a bit like the sorrow and the pity. So that's where yeah. he is beginning, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very self-serious kind of guy. And in a way, for the right reasons, he's aware that other people don't have it. Right. So they don't live in what Woody Allen calls champagne comedies. That's right. Everything happening for the best in the most beautiful of all penthouses. <laughs> exactly. But he also wants more out of the movies. He wants the movies to give him a certain power, right? right. He's not just looking to help out the little guy. He's looking to do it through the movies. That's he right. thinks that he'll change people's minds. He right. wants to promote from poet to prophet, let's say. Yes, that's he's right. one of America's preachers, and there are always many of those. <laughs> yes, to that's Reform people, transform the moral consciousness of the nations, and finally give us that equality, that togetherness that right. we want. And of course, it's usually people who are not really like the rest of us who want so badly to be like the rest <laughs> yes. of us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, it, and, and it makes sense. You know, celebrities want to be loved by us in a way they depend on us. Right. Directors are a step removed since they can concentrate more on achieving an effect and seeing us laugh and cry as they wish us to laugh and cry. And that grasp of psychology seems to give him this idea that he could really achieve more. That's would, right. You know, make the grips of wrath, something like that. Right, exactly. So there is this desire in him to be more than he is, to achieve a power that would really not make us all equal, but would make him the prophet and we, Israel, following him, so to speak. Yes. He wants to be our Moses. And that's a strange thing, but typical somehow of democracy, that anyone who looks at how great America is, the continent-spanning world historical nation, kind of gets this sense, like Lincoln would say, the almost chosen people, <laughs> aren't we? Yes. And we need leaders to match. We need somebody who can right. take this capacious view and steer us. And instead of having this grandeur, you get exactly the stuff he's trying to escape, this slapstick comedy. Right. As you say, he gets out of L.A. and by a series of mishaps and ridiculous events, him the butt of all jokes, he ends up in L.A. without realizing it. <laughs> That's right. He can't direct things anymore. He can't make things happen as he wishes them to happen. He doesn't realize that the equivalent of a director's power is a tyrant. Right. That's There's right. There's a difference between stories, between makings and doings, between telling stories and telling people what to do, for example. No, I think that's right. I think it's something that you see very commonly in our culture, and I suspect also in European culture, actually, and maybe around the world, a sense that one's role as a person with a mouthpiece, whether it's an actor, an actress, a film star, an author, anything like that, a musician, you have to somehow utilize this to improve the world. It's not, I don't think, an evil impulse. I think there's really a grain of something very worthy and human in it. But it does have this tyrannical aspect. That is, what you're expecting to do is to shape the minds of others by your superior understanding and insight. And that's not really how especially America is supposed to work. America is meant to be an egalitarian society where we work things out together and not where one wise person ordains from on high the sorts of things we ought to think and believe and feel. 
So he is in a tension that I think many, many people that we see are in today, perhaps in every age. I don't know how eternal it is, but it's close. It's at least something of our times that's deeply, deeply built in. Yeah, and I think the epidemic has revealed this, right? How yes. many celebrities are trying to show us that we're all in this together and they're <laughs> exactly. going to pick up our flagging spirits. Yes, yes. There was a wonderful British video of all of these people who were genuinely suffering saying, oh, thank you, celebrities. We couldn't have done this without you. I'm facing joblessness and my children are hungry, but we're so glad you're with us. That's another way of mocking from the other side, so to speak, this type of impulse, which again, has a worthy instinct but has also things which, frankly, can be sinister. That's not brought out in the film so much. It's more silliness. In a way, I prefer that. I think mockery is sometimes more effective than a more serious critique that gets to a more vulnerable point of people who are involved in this sort of thing. Yeah, Sturgis is obviously in no way angry with Sullivan. Amused, That's right. Sullivan is the kind of director that makes a director like Sturgis shake his head and laugh. Right. There's something even charming, at least endearing, in the presumption that you're going to go around America and finally meet the people, tell their story, and yes. just change their lives. Yes. <laughs> since, since that's what the movies do, right? In the movies, we see our lives, but different. That's right. That's right. So, I wonder, truthfully, and I studied this at one point, although I can't quite remember my results in the sieve that's my mind, but I suspect Sturgis identifies to an extent with Sullivan. Sullivan may be an exaggerated version I think Sturgis had actually a genuinely adventurous life and a background of some variety, but there's a touch of this too. Otherwise, I think he couldn't have made this film, which turns out to be the sort of film that Sullivan wanted to make, a comedy that somehow exposes the world of suffering, which the rich and the middle class don't see. Yeah, I think that's right. And it gets at a couple of very important things. One of them is that we wouldn't be so eager to laugh if we were not aware of suffering, of misery, if we didn't want to get away with it. Yes. In a way, comedy is truer than anything else in Hollywood because Hollywood is all about happy ends. And in comedy, we understand that in a way they're made up, but in a way, that's what comedy is. Sometimes it right. does work for the best. Sometimes even the accidents go your way. And right. that's part of a world that we tend to forget when we right. obsess too much over antagonism or adversity, partisanship, or just things going the wrong way for a while. That this is something I've only half thought out. It's something I'm trying to work through in the back of my mind along with my other projects. There's something contemplative about comedy. It's a way in which we can step back from something and see it for what it really is and enjoy it and appreciate it without having to make a commitment to try to get something done. It's part of the value of comedy that it permits self-knowledge, self-awareness, and a kind of contemplative musing on the way things are. I mean, Mark Twain is in a way the perfect example of this in something like Huckleberry Finn. It's a contemplative book in a certain way. Is it demanding change? Well, in a certain way, I suppose it is. But it's also just allowing us to sit back and look at who we are. And it's hilarious. That's a really crucial human activity, to sit back and laugh, and in your laughter understand something that was hidden from you when you were being so serious. Yeah, I think that's right. There are these different points of identity between Sturgis and his protagonist, Sullivan. One of them, as I said, is that everybody's in the comedy business. Right. Sometimes the breaks to go our way. But then there's this thing that you mentioned, that poetry is done in the element of the beautiful, of image-making, of storytelling. But there's a difference between tragic and comic heroes. We don't have to look up to comic heroes. Right. It's a more relaxed posture, all in all. We don't have to admire right. them so much. We right. We like them just enough, as it were. 
right. slice scoundrels will do now and then. <laughs> uh, they yeah. don't have to be Superman. And that is indeed likely to encourage us to take a closer look and at the same time to be a bit critical. That is to say, we don't have to try so hard to wish everything to be the best and then everybody to be the best, because otherwise, of course, that bad, tragic thing is going to happen. There is also this advantage that comedy has, that it makes the world bearable because it's amusing. Yes, There are bad things, but some of them you have to laugh at and in a way to remove from bad things their power to take over the imagination and the mind and to scare you. That's right. Bad things that you can laugh at are less dangerous to you. you know? That's right. Unlike FDR, I believe we have much more to fear than just fear itself. But I think <laughs> on to it. You sometimes have to right. fear fear itself. The very consequences of that right. passion taking over the mind, making people seem more puny or more dangerous than they really are, making us hateful or contemptuous when we shouldn't be. Right. Comedy makes us sovereign in a way. Yes, that's a very important thing that we shouldn't let go of because it is part of the ground of equality in America. That is, nobody is too good to be made fun of. Right. Even Lincoln made jokes because this is how America works. (laughs) Well, I think there's something to... We're veering away a little bit and you can bring us back to the film in a second. But there's a moment in Children of Men, which I think is a spectacular, serious film. Not a comedy, but truly a profound commentary on the sort of world that we live in. The character, the old aging hippie who's played by Michael Caine, is being murdered by thugs. And he's playing a silly joke the entire time. And I find that scene incredibly moving because it's in that joking. He's somehow above his murderers. He's kept his dignity in the face of these people that are really treating him in the worst way that you could treat someone. I I think of that because I think of the ways in which laughter is uh, such a source of strength and that the comic mode, it's a mode of real resilience, not just distraction. Yeah, someday I'd like to understand all that. Yeah, somehow we understand that our capacity to laugh at things means that we are not fully overcome even by terrible suffering. That's right. There's gallows humor, there's graveyard humor, there's humor in the face of tragedy, presumably precisely because we wish to insist that we have not been fully brought down. That's right. We still have the capacity to observe and in a way to see that there's something ridiculous about things, either because barbaric behavior is in a way ridiculous or mm-hmm. low, or in another way because some things are just accidents. Right. You know, you don't have to take them all that seriously to think that uh, failure is predetermined as it were, or inevitable. So there's a kind of intellectual side to humor. That's right. Even when we can't take control of things, we can understand them. That's right. That might be exactly. enough to keep our cool. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. More than making us powerful or fixing things, it right. helps you keep your sanity. That's and right. That's sometimes what you got. It's certainly where you have to start. Right. So in all these ways, indeed, Sturgis has to root for his protagonist and admittedly to educate him by the school of hard knocks, which is the only yes. way Americans will learn. <laughs> It's reliable and very, very funny. I didn't funny. know it was just we Americans who learned this way, but I'm happy. <laughs> well, it's experience, practice, doing it for yourself, doing That's it your right. own way, That's not right. accepting authorities. That's right. Well, our, skeptical. School, our real schools are worse. That probably has something to do with it. All we, the best schools we have are schools of hard knocks. <laughs> St. John's, which is a good school. So, you know, there may be a match there, right? Yeah, it's but even uh... St. John's is kind of a school of hard knocks. So I think you're right. I'm going to take, your in, I'm gonna take the, insight, the insight to my people, huh? 
And so we, we should indeed, even in very practical ways, learn from Sturgis. We shouldn't take youthful idealism, even when it is silly. We shouldn't take it harshly. Right. We should try to kid it. We should try to point out some of its ridiculousness, some of its absurdity, while pointing it in the right direction. At the end of the day, John O'Sullivan and Sturgis have to aim at the same thing. Right. Because indeed, there is a lot of trouble in America, and there is a lot of reason for people to be very scared or very angry or both. That's and right. so that has to be dealt with somehow. There is a public duty involved in storytelling, but it has to be a more dignified form of storytelling. I have in mind what you said before that in the democratic age, throughout the world, you have celebrities who are hard at work to convince us that the only thing they know for sure isn't worthwhile is what makes them famous. That's right. They should be moralistic. They should be activists. They should be political. They should be yes. anything but singers, dancers, people, what have you. It's a real diminishment of the real value of their talent. I mean, music and dance and film are crucially important. They're not mere entertainment. And in a way, it's very, very funny. You can imagine on the one hand, you have people chasing after musicians to get a sight of them, to ask for an autograph or just to swoon over their songs. And on the other hand, the musicians protesting that they have very moral things to say to you. You're here for the pleasure, not the morality. So, you know, human beings are strange that way. And at least those artists who have the potential to do something worthwhile for us as human beings, they should have more confidence in it. And it turns out that they can't have that confidence unless they square with a few things. That that's why the School of Hard Knocks is necessary. And in his first trip, Sullivan fails to learn the big lesson that leads him to a lot of suffering at the end. But he does seem to grasp that his notion that you can just hop on and events will fit your wish. Because let's face it, he's a somebody. uh, It's not the case. He begins to be more all-American. He has to work like a hobo for some ladies in their yard to get some food and (laughs) a night's rest. But that then turns out to be very silly because the women, let's say, have a prurient if all natural interest in him. He (laughs) has to run in the middle of the night out the window, no less. This is not what he expected. He wanted poverty to be more honorable and manly work to be more rewarding in a way. Uh, Yes. uh, as though the sight of a manly man might not be attractive. <laughs> no, so, it is a hilarious scene uh, when he's he's working for this woman. And this is, of course, the plight of the poor, right? Sexual exploitation is part of their plight. Yeah. You know, he thinks he's doing one thing and finding his dignity. And even in that, there's a way which that little bit of dignity, that little bit of strength in chopping wood is undermined. And he's demeaned exactly. to this sort of entertainment for a lonely widow. I was looking for the passage where um, I have the screenplay here, but I may not be able to find it. The failure of one of his trips, perhaps the first trip, he's sick at home in bed. And he says to the girl, you know, everything keeps bringing you back to Hollywood. It's as if the world is saying, you know, you're a phony. And it's so poignant. And you're right that his education's already begun. He can see that he's not succeeding. And he sees that even when he, because he's very resistant to have these handlers follow him in the motorhome. He sees that already. He can see that something is corrupting his original impulse. And he, he's trying to get away from it. And he can't find a way how. And I think he can't. I think he's discovered a reality that the second trip with Veronica Lake is no greater a success than the earlier trips get some good shots out of it some good images but he's never able until the third act to escape his own phoniness and his own fantasies of what he thinks he should be doing and the kind of patronizing diminishment that is always 
a live possibility with any kind of charitable action that moves between the social classes. Yeah, I think that's right. The first part is so comical because he's obviously never had to deal with America before. <laughs> and he thinks that if he can just get rid of his handlers who expect him to essentially be taking a luxury vacation right. with a full press court, of course, you know, this gadget on wheels, the home and kitchen and the fully mobile hotel, <laughs> if he can escape them and he can do that by his recklessness, which is a part of comedy. You have to right. be willing to be and to do reckless things if you're going to be a comedian. Right. That's the prattful and the witty dialogue. They are both reckless in a certain right. way. They are That's both right. shameless in a certain way. And that's good enough to get him away from his handlers, but it has a negative character. It's taking these people out of the picture. Putting himself in this other picture, normal America, where people suffer, is the part, as you say, is really, really bad at. He, in between the two trips, he meets this girl who is really down on her luck and who knows far more about America than he does because she's had to take it on the chin a lot. Right. See, she has gone to the School of Hard Knocks. She's a girl from somewhere or other in America who went to Hollywood, like so many people, chasing after the beautiful, That's chasing right. after that success. That's and right. Believing that at some level, the beautiful must be good for you. That's which right. Which is man's natural platform, <laughs> you can call it. <laughs> but she's learned that, no, it doesn't work that way. And in a way, it's threatening to make her bitter. Without right. realizing it, she needs Sullivan and he begins to be good for somebody for a living. That's right. You know, she looks at him and she sees somebody even more miserable than herself because he's a hobo. And then, you know, like, turns out that he can play a hobo in a certain <laughs> way. That's right. That's right. And that would seem to be because there is something hoboish about John L. Sullivan. He is a man without a home. He that's lives right. in a kind of Victorian palace. And obviously, he doesn't need the butler. He doesn't need the luxury. And he doesn't like it either. He's in a fake marriage for tax purposes. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have what. All right. regular Americans do have. In a way, he really is like the very poor underclass types because he right. cannot be a human being to other human beings. Right. He can only be a job. That's what he's dissatisfied with. He's a director, right. but nobody really likes him. Right. And now there's this girl who might like him, who might take him to be a guy, a fellow. But see here, his instinct is, you know, to take her to his rich place and to give her a shot in the movie business. Right. Condescending again. He doesn't yeah. seem to understand that the girl wants to do good for somebody else for a change. Right. She resorts to condescension again. Yeah, that seems really right. And I think it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that part of the film before, that he lives his own kind of emptiness and poverty. His family, so to speak, which we see in the beginning of the film, are his co-workers and his servants. They're all people who profit from him. His wife, of course, is the paradigm instance, right? This tax marriage. His only relationship with her is the monthly phone call where she demands her payment. So he also lives a diminished life. And the girl has an interesting role there because it's right. She wants to connect with another human being, with someone who's worse off than her. She knows how to do it in a way that he doesn't. You know, just buy someone breakfast, even if you don't have much. But even so, he can't quite... I do think there's a little bit of an irony, and maybe this is me coming from outside from things that I observe in the world, but it's another feature of this type of fake philanthropy that you're always interested in the people who suffer outside your industry. <laughs> so you're very concerned about the warehouse workers for Amazon. You're not so concerned about the diminished service workers on your college campus who are treated just as badly and are right in front of you and whom you actually have some power within your community to affect their lives. 
you want the suffering to be somewhere else. You want it to come at it from a safe distance. So there's another beautiful irony similar to him coming back to Hollywood that the first needy person that he encounters is the sort of person who his way of life makes desperate. <laughs> so he's in the film industry. He's at the top of it. And he's never thought for a second, not for one second, about the people whose lives are destroyed by it. You know, these young women who come in hoping for something and end up diminished and exploited and leaving in bitterness. This is his life. This is his world. It's the outer edge of it. That's not so much picked up later in the film because you have to figure that it's not a solution, right, to marry the girl, as happens at the end of the film. <laughs> That's not going to be a way that the Hollywood starlets are going to escape from exploitation and bitterness. They're not going to each have a director to marry. But it does, I think you're right, solve or address the deeper need both of them have, which is to have a connection with another person that's not based on use and that's not based on advancing oneself or being advanced or saving money or making money or trying to build a career, but it's just based on their simple regard for one another, which is, I think, beautifully simple in this film. They just like each other. They're both slightly vulnerable. They're both very witty. They're both entertaining, and that's somehow enough. They meet each other, and that's crucial for them. Yeah, I think that's right. This guy never thinks for a second to help out in Hollywood. He never yeah, thinks right. about right. the consequences of him offering America fantasies. What if some people will believe it? Right. What if it's not social change? It's just people flocking to Hollywood endlessly. Or New York, of course, it's right. happening. Right. So you're perfectly right about that. And indeed, Hollywood has not gotten any prettier, if anything, no. rather no. scarier and uglier. So. I think that's right. <laughs> Uh, but it is the case that the girl also needs somebody. Finally, she is better than somebody in, in right. a way that she can be useful because she does know more about the world. She has seen poverty. She does know what it means to live for days on sense. And so she can help him out. But there's also this other side that it's not just that she never met the right guy to help her career. She's obviously never met the right man in any other sense either. And right. she sees immediately how moral this guy is in a modest, unassuming way. He's right. an American sense of humor to deflect from right. uh, his earnestness. But he's a very earnest, very clueless guy. And she sees quickly that he's the opposite of what she has seen and what we all have heard about Hollywood, about people in power exploiting young women. So she feels that, you know, she can trust him in a way she can guide him. But right. also that this is the kind of man that in a way she's looking for. Right. Uh, somebody who believes that America can work out, it might stave off, if not cure, her bitterness. Her right. Her sufferings and her miseries. She was looking for something ideal. And this guy's, you know, it's Joel McCree. He's close enough to ideal. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a lovely touch, actually. I hadn't seen this before, but if they had met, not in the strange space of this adventure which Sullivan's on, but in the normal space of their lives, it would have been a relationship of use. She's an aspiring actress, and he's a director. He would have had his barriers up or his exploiting tentacles out, whichever one happened to be the four. And she would have had to, as she so hilariously mocks in the film, flatter and be coquettish and forward without being too forward and withdrawn without being too withdrawn. Instead, because they meet in this place of poverty, even though the poverty of one is fake, that somehow allows them to connect at a human level in a way that's independent of their industry. And you're very right that they're somehow able to get out of that mode, even when they discover each who the other is, because somehow he really does need her. He can't undertake this adventure without her. She has the knowledge, she has the know-how, she provides the companionship. And so somehow that connection that they forge in this moment of mutual poverty is able to survive being brought out into the Hollywood world. 
yeah, you know, they meet on a plane of equality, strangely enough. And there's a bit of Shakespeare, there's a bit of Jane Austen in this. Modern That's marriage right. involves a lot more equality because it involves a lot more friendship. That's right. People feel their neediness, you know, their weakness, and they need somebody to help out, really to complete us, that is to say, to make up our shortfall. Right. There's a lot of neediness in love, and it's hard to deal with it in at all a reasonable way, but friendship would seem to help that along. As you said, they joke around, they make fun of each other, they clearly enjoy each other's presence, but for once they don't have to be mannered. Right. As you say, how do you know she's a good actress? Because she has learned the manners. She has learned to act in Hollywood, if not on the screen. But they can dispense with that. In her case, because she's been disappointed. In his case, because he's been disappointed as well, but also because he's just really bad at acting. <laughs> he really is clueless. That's right. And so she is trustworthy. You know, he's not going to be deceptious. He doesn't have the skill for deception, really. No, that's right. He's not self-aware enough to realize that he might be considered exploitative or deceptious. Indeed, right. he doesn't realize why the girl might be upset with his deceptions when right. she throws him in the pool. <laughs> that's, so. that's right. Uh, that seems really right. Yeah. And there's something to, since you've made this about America, which wasn't my first impulse, but I'm going to follow your lead. There's something about the American totality of work Right. These are both people whose careers have taken over their entire lives. So he gets married for tax purposes. His family is his company. And her romances are with potential directors, with people who can help her along. Their whole lives are dedicated to an industry, an industry which, of course, is dedicated to pretending to be someone other than you are. That's the center of it is a creation of a kind of illusion about who you are. And somehow, in this very profound, interesting way, through a kind of chance created by this pretense, they're able to escape and find a relationship that actually might be something that could ground your life and get you out of this hollow shell where everything is work and everything is pretense and everything is making money. Yeah, there's a shift, as Aristotle would say, from friendship for advantage in business to friendship for pleasure. That's right. And so the second trip is far more somber in tone, far more dramatic, because now he can take it, and in a way we can take it. It's not just Sullivan. There's Veronica Lake right next to Joel McRae, and they're not alone anymore, and it's easier for them in this way to realize what suffering looks like, what people who live in shelters live like, what the misery of the meals and the sleeping and the showers and all this stuff is. In a way we can take it, but in another way we have to, right? Partly because we just want it to work out for them, Right. Want romance to be that easy and yeah, of course, and, and it's not for romance to be married. You have to have an awareness of what you have to lose. Yes, you have to have certain fears to keep you reasonable. Yes, to see that this could all go very, very, what it means for a family not to have a home, or on the other hand, for people to lose their families and end up alone in shelters. There's an excess of mobility in America. And for a lot of people now, as much as then, it turns out that way, that people end up broken and they have to somehow be taken care of by a society that really doesn't know how to do it. It's just here you begin to see the limits of what he might have an ambition to do. He's he's not going to fix this. None of his ideas, none of his convictions can fix this because it's a part of America that people have to live with. Maybe it can be ameliorated. Maybe you can see that these people are human beings, but it's so hard to treat them as such. And so, you know, fairly soon he has enough and tells her, you know, let's just go home. Let's just go away from this. But he'll do this one last thing, throw money at the poor, which is, of course, the liberal ideal. uh, (laughs) And, you know, anybody who's reasonable should know that money goes a long way, especially in America. (laughs) 
There's no denying it. I don't mean to belittle that. It's the way the movie portrays this epitome of insanity. Running around with a lot of money in the middle of the poor is in a way even worse than dragging a young girl. Right. Disguised as a boy around. I mean, there are certain things that you should be worried about. Yeah. But of course, you could say that since he has no street smarts, he doesn't know to worry about them. He yes. doesn't realize it. Is He still believes that the goodness of his intentions is what counts. Even when he has realized that he cannot, for all his good intentions, fix these people's lives. Right. He doesn't, in a way, he has to get his ass kicked because he doesn't assume that equality goes so far that somebody in his social class right. would face any danger from somebody else. Right. Because these are the poor, they're miserable, they don't even have a home. How would they dare, is it worth? There's a lot of condescension in right. that attitude. You know, he sees somebody stole his boots. Well, you know, of course, people just steal out of necessity. And surely that could never lead to worse things. Right. Well, it does. The man who steals his boots comes around to knock him out and steal his money. And with that, we begin to see what we really need comedy for and why comedy is so hard to do. There are evil things, not just intractable social problems. All of a sudden, it's personal. Some guy who didn't know him from Adam wanted to kill him or get rid of him, take his money. In a strange way, it's a sign of Sullivan's nobility. He does Mm -hmm. not worship money. His success has not made him a money worker. That's right. If anything, he's even a little irresponsible with money. But, you know, generosity is that way, and it's a virtue. Whereas, you see, you know, a desperate guy, desperate for money, who tries to kill him and dies himself, hit by a train, in a kind of reenactment of the scene he was considering filming in the beginning, right? Right. But there are certain modifications. It turns out that capital is not identical with evil, nor labor is identical with virtue. In the specific instance, they have been reversed. Right. If if he's not quite virtuous, Sullivan is certainly not vicious. The other guy is definitely vicious despite his abject poverty. Right. Turns out it's not a badge of sainthood. Right. It's something he would need to learn and in a way that we would need to learn since in our desire for happy ends and a conclusion where everybody's happy, we do kind of assume that, you know, like there's no real danger. There's no real problem. No, there are real problems. Sometimes people are really, really ugly. And this is how we get into this third act, where, as you say, Sullivan loses his identity in his third journey. You know, he had no idea who he was before in one sense. Now he doesn't have any idea who he is in another sense. He forgot his name. He forgot who he is. Getting the daylights beaten out of him shocked him. So by a series of accidents, he ends up on the wrong side of the law and begins to see what it's like in America for people who aren't respectable. Right. When once that respectability, that presumption of being middle class, kind of well-dressed, kind of well-behaved, shaven, all of these things go away, the suit goes away, well, you can be treated in a pretty horrifying way. It's a correlative of respectability. Those who aren't respectable have it coming. No, I think that's right. And I think even before we get into the third act, which is so rich, that's initiated by his being mugged and beaten and thrown into the railway car. I want to say something about it. I think that it's part of Sturge's incredible brilliance as a filmmaker, that sequence of the second trip, where you have a montage style, so there's less dialogue. It's a series of images, and it's him and Veronica Lake in soup kitchens and in bread lines and in homeless shelters. And the shots really reach out to some of the horror of the poverty that they're in, while at the same time being a part of this comic romance, picaresque and adventure. And I'm not even sure how he does that. It doesn't seem to me like it's something that should be possible to present a sequence in a story that's a romantic, picaresque adventure between a man and a woman, and yet somehow also to the camera, almost despite itself, unveils these people as human beings whose suffering is really not appropriate. 
to the kind of context in which they're being put. I think particularly of that shot in the soup kitchen of an older man who's eating his free dinner without any teeth. And the camera sort of dwells on him for a while and you can feel the stare that Sullivan and the girl are putting on him. You can see that this is a human being whose suffering is real, who does not belong in a picaresque romance. So the filmmakers already sort of prepared the third act in a certain way by having the edges of the comedy challenged like that. That doesn't take away from the shock, I don't think. I think it really is a shock to the viewer when Sullivan's mugged, beaten, thrown in the railway track, and then that person is himself run over by a train with the boots left to suggest that Sullivan himself was run over. There's a shock at that moment because you haven't seen violence before in the film. Everything's been funny. But it is also a development of the sense that there's something outside Sullivan's view that he's not grasping, even when he's looking straight at it. He can't get the poverty. He can't get the suffering. It's not the kind of thing you can view from a distance. The only way you understand poverty, and this is clear from the beginning of the film in words, but it's illustrated throughout, the only way you can really understand it is by experiencing it, not just as a tourist, but as someone who can't get out of it. That's part of what poverty is. So I just wanted to put that out there because I really think that this is a way in which the film is just absolutely brilliant. It's self-awareness. And it portraying the kind of self-awareness that a good comedy has. You know, you see the comedy and you see the limits of the comedy. And the whole film was always about the limits of comedy. I just wanted to express my awe and my admiration at this incredible filmmaker who was able to do this in images as well as in words. Yeah, that's right. There's something remarkable about these two things that you mentioned. On one hand, how changeable things are. Why is this story something we're willing to follow? Well, as I never tire of saying, this is America. This is, in a way, democracy. People shift their station. Right. People move from this to that. Sullivan wasn't born into Hollywood any more than Sturgis himself. But, you know, things happen. People move around. We don't have either the storytelling or the society, like in old Europe, where classes were different and the stories were incredibly formal. If it was a comedy, it was a comedy with comic things and not with the other things. There were rules because society, in a way, made that possible. Whereas in this other sort of society, you can't rely on the rules of storytelling or genre because life is too shifting. Right. You can't take things for granted that much. But on the other hand, it makes it plausible when all of a sudden we go from slapstick to, as you say, these scenes of poverty. We all know this is Skid Row. This is happening in every city in America. But we right. can avoid where that is. Right, that's right. You know you could just get there in half an hour tops. Right. But we don't. It's very easily done. It's why it's right. so persuasive on screen. But on the other hand, we've never done it. Or, well, mostly. And so that shows you how the second act shifts There are three travels, and they're separated by two acts of generosity. At the end of the first act, Sullivan generously offers a career to this girl, and that turns out to misfire. And at the end of the second act, he does generosity to the poor in general. Right, that's right. That, as much as the camera shows you that we are at a distance from these people, we don't know what their stories are, we don't know how they ended up there, we don't know what's going to happen to them, we don't know who they are. So this act of generosity misfires as well. And, and so in a way, he's done something on a much larger scale, just make promises or give stuff to everybody. Right. And that seems to bring him to his crisis. Right. He has it all taken away from him. He, the career, the girl, his own name taken away from him. Right. And just the presumption of being American, of being a free man who owes difference to nobody, who yes. has his rights. You know, and you can see, like, that's why we don't get along with the underclass. They are too much like us. Right. They don't defer to the respectable people because they too are free-born Americans. Right. It's more right. tragic. 
Right. And so he has to somehow experience that. As you said, he has to have it all taken away from him for him to even realize what, what the hell he's talking about when he's talking about suffering. The single worst thing about it is that you cannot wish it away. Right. Yeah, I have a, a few thoughts. One is that this moment of transition, part of its power is distributing money to quote unquote the poor en masse. This is the ultimate expression of the distance between him and them, right? First of all, he's rich. Second of all, he's an individual. He gets to be an individual and they get to be the poor, right? And they get cast into the role of grateful recipients of the generosity of this rich man who is noble and who is being lauded in the newspaper for doing just this thing because it's all caught on camera. So on the one hand, I think that's part of the power is you get this intense distance more intense than anything we've seen so far in the film, I think. And then all of a sudden, the switch, the turn, and he's suddenly an actual poor person, at least as far as any practical possibility is concerned, because he doesn't remember who he is, and everyone thinks he's dead, so they're not even looking for him. So he's cast as securely as anyone could be from his class into the lower class. Now, part of what I think is so interesting, and this is part of the enduring value of the film as a commentary on poverty and distance between the social classes, it's violence that's one of the main dividing factors between the poor and the rich. Being subject to violence and so also perhaps a practitioner of violence. That is, perhaps violence is your only way out, right? It's the route of opportunity for you. And that's something, of course, his butler hints at him at the beginning of the film, right? The butler is telling him that he thinks what trying to be poor is disgraceful. And he says that poverty is not the lack of anything, but a positive plague, virulent in itself, contagious as cholera with filth, criminality, vice, and despair, as only few of its symptoms. It is to be stayed away from, even for the purposes of study, it is to be shunned. And violence, of course, is always the hardest dividing line that there could be. I say this as someone who I myself spent some time with a number of people and communities who were trying to bridge this gap between the middle class and the poor. And so they would move into very poor neighborhoods and, you know, get to know the people on a level of friendship and try to serve them that way. These are real people who I really met uh, in real life. So this is a way to try to solve Sullivan's problems. Instead of going as a tourist, you move into the neighborhood, you get to know your neighbors as neighbors, you take on their poverty to the extent that you can. But the difficulty with people who choose that is always the violence. You know, do I willingly subject myself to violence, which can be murderous, which can be disfiguring, all the things that we don't like about violence. And of course, as the film also illustrates, it moves in every direction. So it's not just as you say that the poor people are human beings, Nothing about poverty makes you virtuous any more than anything about wealth makes you virtuous. And in a way, of course, it's easier to be virtuous when you're wealthy because you're not pressed as hard against the wall. But on the other hand, it's something that's perpetuated because your life is worthless as a poor person. So the people in this prison that you see in the third act, they are absolutely worthless human beings as far as the warden is concerned. The worst thing that they can do, which Sullivan does, is to act like you are a human being with some dignity and some rights. If you do that, then you'll be thrown in solitary. You'll be beaten to drive that out of you until you submit. And I think this is perhaps the ugliest reality of poverty. You can be treated however anyone wants, and no one will be there to help you. And no one is there to help these prisoners, apart from, as you mentioned earlier, this African-American church who know from their own experience what it's like to be treated as subhuman. And they put on this comedy for these prisoners. And it's through their generosity that Sullivan has this moment of clarity where he realizes why comedy matters. Yeah, he ends up lower than black people, the That's descendants right. of slaves. That's that right. such a telling choice. 
you see this, for example, all the time in the Thousand and One Nights. Whenever yeah. the stories want to tell you the lowest of the low in the hierarchy of Persian Arabs yeah. is the black slave. That's right. And despite what Muhammad says about preaching to the red and the black and the equality in faith, that's the social hierarchy. Black right. slaves at the bottom, it's the most right. debased thing there is in the stories. Right. And so also, of course, with black slaves in America... And yet, these are the people who reach out to God. It's this strange situation where the slaves have taken the religion of the people who enslaved them in the first place. They are Christians. Right. Right. They see themselves as the Jews. They see themselves as trying to escape Egypt. Right. And so he finally sees what it's like from the bottom. Right. And in a certain way, from the point of view of these black people, he's Pharaoh or certainly part of Pharaoh's elite yeah. society. Right. And he also you also see how much these people insist on morality, on mores and manners, even in church. They defer to the prisoners in an ostentatious way. You know, they're going to make right. room for the prisoners in the first rows because the prisoners rarely get right. a right. chance, like sitting in a congregation. Right. He sees for once what it means for people who have nothing or next to nothing to make a community, to make a way of life for themselves. Right. Money goes a long way, but money isn't everything. In a way, money is what separates us because we're rich and poor. We don't have real classes that you're born and live into and come with expectations, manners, clothes that identify you and all that. Right. You know, it's America. Everybody's in jeans. Like, yeah. years ago, everybody was in a suit, <laughs> that's Like right. in the movie. Yeah, that's right. But there are certain differences, and life is different for people who suffer. And as you say, it is violence and the fact that the laws are not your friends. That's right. These differences cannot be wished away for all our decent liberal impulses or all our egalitarian beliefs. It's very hard to face them. You look at this stuff and you blush. And, yeah. well, you know, you should. Yeah. If you think that you're a moral person and you'd like to help people out, you should look at these things and blush. Because I... it is different when you're poor. It's not going to go away anytime soon. It's not fixable. That's what's so shocking about it all. Yeah. And that's why it's here is where you see religion, the hope in God come up. Right. Because nothing else will deal with this stuff. No, if you think actually about the time in which this film was made, which was late 1930s, is that right? So after the New Deal, but maybe it takes place a bit earlier, something like 80 years ago, in the intervening time, there's been a massive movement of aid for poverty, programs, initiatives, some of which have done some good. But the fact is, here we are, and who's dying like flies? It's the people in prisons, because their lives are expendable. We have this pandemic, and, you know, some of us get to isolated home, and other of us are thrown into dormitories with hundreds of people, and not given soap. So it's part of, I think, the power of the film, that this reality that Sullivan finds is an enduring reality. Our prisons may not look exactly like the prison in the film, but they have that same character of being subject to arbitrary violence and where playing the game and getting along is the only way to survive, much less have any peace. It's an interesting connection with the earlier part of the film that just as Veronica Lake, this poor woman who's been locked out of her house and has to hitchhike her way back home to her parents, she's the one who buys the ham and eggs for the homeless guy. She has some sense of where he is that's a bit lower than her. And in the same way, these descendants of slaves in the black church, they are the people who see that these prisoners need some space, even if it's temporary, where they can be human beings and treated with some deference and some kindness and given something that a human being might want, like a ridiculous slapstick cartoon to watch. 
And then we have to imagine what real poverty is. The cheapest good in the world, a slapstick comedy cartoon, could be something that you were deprived of. And you could be deprived of in a systematic and perhaps even deliberate way of all the things that could make you recognize your humanity. It's the descendants of slaves that recognize this, and it's their religion and their church, their community somehow. We get a glimpse in that moment, I think, in the church of what it might mean to have a community that's compassionate, that's connected with the poor, that reaches out. It's just a glimpse, and then it disappears, and we get Sullivan making comedies from his Hollywood villa with his beautiful wife, (laughs) which in a way I think it's a real resolution. In another way, the tensions are left intact. You do get this glimpse of what it might be like to have a community that's aware of what poverty means and has some commitment to doing what can be done to help them to recover their humanity, even in small ways. Yeah, you know, at the end, you do see, as you suggested, this great distinction between the protagonist and the story. It works out for John L. Sullivan because, in a way, he's learned his lesson right. and he deserves good things because he's a good guy. But there's no saying that the people who have bad things in prison deserve those bad things. Right. It's just that they're stuck with them. That's right. That's not going to transform that way. And that, in a way, is a lesson of comedy. In a way, it might not be of drama. Comedy has to also show you that some things don't change. All our moral wishes don't make it so. Right. And as you say, you know, what is the difference between today and when Preston Sturgis was talking about it? Now the federal government and the state governments own poverty. Right. They pay for it, they administer it. That's right. It's still there. That's right. Take the liberalism of John L. Sullivan and multiply it by the power of a federal government unexampled in world history, and it still can't be fixed. And we are, it seems right now, at the beginning of a cataclysm like the Great Depression, which we were supposed to have solved with all of our brilliance and all of our initiative, and we haven't. Not because, I mean, I think there are legal and commercial difficulties which are being brought to the fore, for which some kind of change is possible, although not the kind of transformation one might want, if you had the heart of Sullivan, or or my heart anyway. But on the other hand, it's fallen victim to a a microscopic entity, (laughs) which is a part of nature and not something that we have control over. So it's very interesting that way. I think part of the distance between the rich and the poor, which gets underlined in the conclusion as it is throughout the film, is the hilarious way that Sullivan and gets out, right? He confesses to his own murder in the hopes of getting his picture in a newspaper, and then perhaps his handlers back in Hollywood will recognize him and will pull the strings of influence to get him out. And the gambit works. He confesses to his own murder, and it's, of course, a brilliant plot twist and beautifully far-fetched, and you understand how impossible it would be for anyone else to do it. You know, this is the way out of poverty. Actually, not be from it to begin with. Be gifted enough at storytelling and knowledgeable enough of the way that stories get told that you can tell the right story that will draw the right attention to you, that will pull you right out of the situation that you're in. This is exactly the opposite of the sort of systemic solution that Sullivan might have been seeking at the beginning, where, you know, you find a way of changing the relationships between labor and capital such that suffering is alleviated. It's not that. Only the chance vicissitudes of a certain kind of a story can pop someone out of the lowest places and get them into the highest. That's, in a certain way, a kind of a dark commentary on the American dream, which is, you know, we're supposed to think that, you know, any of those prisoners, however lowly their circumstances, by hard work and by virtue, they could get themselves. It's absolutely false, right? There's no way out. Any display of virtue would be taken as an affront, would be an invitation to further diminishment. Somehow the role of the story is quite interesting. I feel like I have like a half of a thought that I haven't fully worked out there, but it's telling a story that gets him out and getting it in the newspaper. That's his ticket to freedom. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And, you know, it's what Sullivan has in common with Tom Sawyer. Great storytelling goes a long way in <laughs> Exactly. It's not just faking it till you make it. Faking it is making it a that's lot right. of the time. That's right, exactly, yeah. And he's a storyteller. And so there are these two Sullivans. Sullivan without his name and identity in prison is not really different from other Americans who have been turned into brutes by being brutalized. Right. But he still has his wits about him enough to concoct a way to get out. He can get back to being the real Sullivan. He can't be Sullivan except in Hollywood as comic destiny, the comic equivalent of Providence in storytelling, uh, right. kept pushing him back to Hollywood because you can only be a storyteller where they tell the story. That's right. If that's that's what you want to do. If that's what you're good at, that's where you should be. Right. Where otherwise, in other parts of America, he's just clueless and indeed he could be in danger and he has to learn that. How do you teach celebrities in general that they should stick to their job? Fear. They should be afraid of the consequences because otherwise the life of fantasy of telling stories makes you think that anything could turn into anything. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. With the right storytelling, we could solve the social problem. Everybody could be rich. So you get on the one hand, it's so interesting in the first two parts of the film, especially the first part, the limits of storytelling, that is you can't just tell a story and get yourself into poverty. That doesn't work. The story will somehow keep pulling you back into Hollywood keep you in the realm of story and it won't let you get out. On the other hand, that providential force, which keeps him back in Hollywood again and again at the beginning of the film, that's reversed in the third act. He can't get out. He can't get back to Hollywood. He's utterly helpless. And all of the energy that went to him trying to escape Hollywood is now being dedicated to getting back. And oddly enough, it's the story that gets it. The story returns him to the place of stories. Yes, exactly. If he didn't have those handlers out there looking for the story, which is their job, then it would never have worked. Although, of course, it's still true, right, that many rags to riches stories in America succeed in virtue of their stories. You know, we love this story. Americans have always loved it. And so we continue to tell it. And it continues to elevate those people who are able to tell it to the right person at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. So the film becomes quite an interesting reflection on the power of stories and the relation of stories to social class and advancement. Right? It's America. Whether you're Barack Obama or Donald Trump, you should have a compelling story. You should get your book out early, right? Americans write their memoirs in their 20s or 30s. I was trying to think of a good... Bill Clinton might be the best example, right? We all come from a place called... The Boy from Hope. Right, exactly. Bill Clinton is the Tom Sawyer of America, right? Exactly. Come from very little. He counterfeited everything by his native intelligence. That's right. every respectable institution in America and ended up on top. That's right. And storyteller to the end, you know, just continually weaving the stories. It's a beautiful, actually, I mean, beautiful, terrifying in a certain way, but <laughs> no, we, we, we live in this web of stories and that's what drives the machinery. And Noe Sturgis is uniquely well-fitted for this sort of storytelling. He, he grew up in glamour, not luxury, right. but he spent his early years under a very strong woman for a mother in Europe. I uh, so, actually. Hence his European view of certain American facts. Then the certain, you know, willingness to tell immoral truths. There is this entire other side of the comedy. In America, stories go a long way. But you need to understand where the storytellers and the people stand to one another. That's right. Sullivan has to fully collapse to realize what his place is. And it's a gilded cage, but he has to go back into that gilded cage because that's how it works. You're not king of America. You're certainly not king of the Americans. They will laugh at your jokes. And it does have an almost religious 
effort and right and it's walt disney yeah cartoon he's watching that's right that's walt disney's power in america giving people this kind of hope it's magical it's the magic of the movies right. it's the hope that comedy can offer that right. is supposed to neutralize suffering as when all these catastrophic things happen to cartoon characters we don't really flinch we realize that there are explosions, there are all sorts of things that would be destructive in the real world, but not in the element of the beautiful. The very fictitiousness that's so obvious and kind of technological, so like we right. can love it, it's ours, right. the land of technology. The very fictitiousness yes. is reassuring. Right. We want a vacation from reality because right. reality isn't that great. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't throw it away, yeah. but now and then, you know, yeah. we, want, uh, <laughs> we right. want some time away from reality. That's right. Sullivan seems to learn that you should embrace fiction. You should stop trying to have so much fact in your right. powers of storytelling. Embrace fiction. And by a fiction, he gets himself out of prison, right? right? He has to use the word, the storytelling aspect of the law to get out of the other side of the law, which is violence. That's right. He's tough enough, endurant enough to roll with the punches up until he becomes clever enough to get out right. of by telling this story that he killed himself. And in a way, he did. In, in, in uh, hope that he put himself in that situation unaware, and that he's not quite the man he was before. That's he right. He's a new John L. Sullivan, as suggested by the fact that he is now free from that wife he married in a moment of cynicism to save some money on taxes. Right. And now he's free of that marriage because the lady married somebody else, the business manager with whom she had connived to sucker John right. Sullivan into marriage and out of his money. Right. So now she stands to be charged of bigamy, whereas before it was plain old adultery, and <laughs> you don't prosecute that anymore. That's right. That's right. But bigamy was still, and I think still would be today, That's know, right. a, a problem. So they're not chosen without any meaning. So now he's free. Finally, he's free to marry the girl he should be marrying and that he couldn't have married before, both for personal reasons and for this legal problem right. he had gotten himself into with a fake right. marriage. Right. And so when once you embrace the power of fiction, you begin to see this too. Certain yeah. parts of our even legal arrangements, right. they're not as serious as they first seem. No. Yeah. The ambiguity of America begins to be revealed here. Yeah. It reminds me of the worst brush with the law that I ever had, which is not very serious. I was speeding in Virginia. I was on a cross-country trip in southwest Virginia, a very poor part of Virginia, speeding maybe 21, 22 miles over the limit. And I was pulled over and I got what I thought was a speeding ticket that turned out to be a reckless driving citation, which is the law in Virginia. And once I realized this, I got to wherever I was going and I realized this, I realized that I was suddenly on the other side of the law as this nice lady, you know, nice white middle-class lady has <laughs> never run into the law in her life. Suddenly I was facing, you know, a criminal record, you know, it's class one misdemeanor and points on my record and insurance claims going through the roof. And of course, because of who I was, I knew that there must be a way of doing this. I had to talk to my storytelling consultant. I had to find a lawyer and a, I found a lawyer in the local county. And it turned out they'd set up this gambit where the judge would agree to treat reckless driving cases as faulty equipment cases. So instead of the story that I was driving recklessly and over the limit, you get a story that my speedometer was broken. I remember talking to the first lawyer who I talked to about this, because this was just what all the lawyers in that area did. 
And I said, well, you know, the thing is, my speedometer wasn't broken. I mean, it's just not true. And he's like, oh, that's a funny point you're making. <laughs> so here was this fiction that had been built up so that the county could get the fees from one citation rather than sending the fees to the state. And it is, it's a world of stories. And it can be terrifying if you're on the wrong side of it. And part of what I think is wonderful about a filmmaker like Preston Sturges or any great comedian, there's a story that's aware of itself. And that has a special power to free you from a world in which stories can make you or break you, can destroy your life or make you a king. Self-awareness, it's the ability to reflect, to step back and to think about what it means to live by stories seems crucial to the film in a way I hadn't seen fully, I don't think, until this conversation. Yeah, I think especially the latter half of the comedy has this depth to it that suggests what the implications are of how Americans look at each other and how they look at the law, how they look at their various stations in life. And the culmination of it is understanding just how important stories are in America, just how far you can go, and of course also just how far you can be taken. Right. If it goes against you. And That's right. And a brief third act, John Sullivan is both on the wrong side of the law and then, in a strange way, on the right side of the law. <laughs> That's right. By a series of mistakes and miscarriages of justice, he lands in the Husgau, but by a series of tricks and technicalities, he gets out. Right. How complicated is justice all of a sudden? <laughs> That's right? So, you know, in feature runtime, this is a 90-minute movie. All of this stuff is just there. It's delightful, it's at times worrisome or even terrifying, and there are all these scintillating thoughts weaved into the story that make you think more and more about aspects of what people look for in love, in social change, and how they look at justice and talent, and all these other things that have become, of course, far more important to us since. Since, you know, everybody can try and be a director or a celebrity on YouTube, and everybody seems to be trying. (laughs) That's right. I'd be satisfied with Twitter celebrity, that's enough for me but uh, (laughs) I have humble modest modest ambitions (laughs) yes that in a way everybody is much more John Sullivan than they realize these days because America has democratized even more and the tendencies of democracy celebrity and worship included and the sort of activism all of them have gone into overdrive that's right and yet they're not clear you know everybody has a reason of course and nobody likes to be uh, made an example of either right but eight years ago things were much clearer because they were in a way just beginning right and uh, so there's so much of the sturgis films the sturgis comedies that's really about what's happening in america and how come we'll have more of it Yes. America is only becoming more American in yes. these ways. Yes. So I hope our audience is persuaded that Sturgis has the talent to amuse everyone now as 80 years ago. And hopefully we've added to that some of the thinking in this writer-director's career, what, what he was going on about and what got him going, what, what he right. wanted to right. look at and why he wanted to show it to the rest of us as well, to share with us something about how we deal with life. So thanks a lot for joining me. And, oh, thanks uh, so much for being here. This has been great. Looking let's, forward let's to more, again. more Preston Sturges conversations. Yes. Exactly. We, we have to do some more. Yeah. And before we leave off, I should tell our audience, you can just go on Amazon and buy Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life by Zina Hitz. Look it up. It's doing well in the Amazon philosophy charts, and uh, but it should be a bestseller. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> or go to Barnes and Noble if you'd like. You don't have to go to Amazon, you know. Indeed. You just, uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna find it somewhere. Just gonna take on uh, Titus's left wing here, and you know, if you object to the labor <laughs> yeah. practices. You can, and you want to fight the battle between labor and capital. Tell yourself a story and go on Barnes and Noble instead, uh, or directly to the I, press. Yes, it's a strange <laughs> world where Barnes and Noble is all <laughs> you know, a badge of virtue. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's but the world we live in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Titus. I really, it's been great. Thank you for joining me and for a wonderful conversation. Yes, and for let's me too. Do this again. Yes, absolutely. I, how about the Lady Eve? Do you want to do the Lady Eve next? Yes, let's do that next. All right. Uh, love in America, men and women. What could be more interesting than that? Yeah. I um. <laughs> after that, I I have to think a bit because those are these two are my favorites. The other ones I haven't seen as often. I mean, I think Miracle of Morgan's Creek is very good. And um, what's the... Yes, uh, is, uh, um, Hail the Conquering Hero. Oh, Hail the Conquering Hero is fabulous. That's right. That's Yeah, those are also very yeah, good. So those are excellent. Small Town America, uh, about Palm war Beach and Story. love. And... Palm Beach Story is also very good. Yes. So those are the ones I remember really enjoying, although I haven't had a chance to revisit them. So, But I'd be thrilled to. And I, uh, yeah, it's... Um... Well, then let's talk about Lady Eve next and perhaps Paul the story after that, the sort of luxurious love affairs. And yes, perfect. Get to the others later. All right. All the best, Mia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon.